Well, welcome. Can you hear me? Good, good. Uh, we appreciate all the, the guests here at Lion and Lamb. I just want to uh, assure you that I'm not the regular guy. If you want the good stuff, come back next week. And, uh, but we hope to learn something today. Uh, I have uh, been challenged by a concept that's pretty intriguing to me that I wanted to talk about today. Uh, in this day of positive self-esteem, and we've got countless courses and workshops on positive parenting and positive employee relations, and we're told that we should always praise others when they do something, anything, good or as expected. In other words, if somebody carries out an assigned task, you know, they should be praised. Uh, is it possible, I'm asking, that amidst all this positivity, that we might be building unrealistic expectations? A pastor friend of mine once said that today's youth tend to show up in flip-flops and late, and you have to tell them they've done a great job even when they haven't. Now, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, sometimes they don't wear flip-flops. Sometimes they're barefoot. But, well, have we raised a generation which expects to be praised for doing the minimum expected? In other words, their duty. Do children expect to be praised for obeying an instruction, employees simply for doing their job? Uh, if we're to consider just how high the bar is for our effort to serve, yeah, we can certainly use pop psychology or politi politically correct language, or we might resign ourselves to the good old parenting fallback of, I'll be happy with anything positive. Uh, now, as much as I agree in being positive, even though I struggle with that issue, and being encouraging, I think in some sense we may be doing a disservice to those under our care or our authority if we skew the concept of faithful service. In other words, if we dumb down duty. Uh, a great example... Uh, that I've read a little bit about uh, as to a high view of duty is Robert E. Lee. And in uh, 19, excuse me, 1847, uh, Captain Lee was in the United States Army serving in Texas. Um, and uh, the... Uh, at that time, he was uh, actually serving in Mexico, and uh, he was an engineer. And I'm reading out of a book, a biography called Call of Duty. After the fall of Mexico City, when the army was celebrating the victory with great joy and relief in the emperor's palace, someone arose to propose a toast to the captain of the engineers. 
who had been the one to find a way for the army to take the city. It was only then that the men noticed that Robert E. Lee, the captain of the engineers, was not present. Major Magruder was immediately dispatched to find him and to bring him to the hall to receive his honors. After an extended search, Magruder finally found Captain Lee in a remote, quiet room in the palace, busily working on a map. It was his responsibility to make maps of the area, and he had not yet finished his task. Magruder reproached Lee for ignoring the festivities. Lee calmly, calmly responded by pointing to his, instruction, his instruments. Excuse me. Magruder was incredulous. But this is mere drudgery. Make somebody else do it and come with me. No, replied Lee. No, I am but doing my duty. Only his clear sincerity saved him from being ridiculed for self-righteousness. Magruder knew Lee well enough to know that this was indeed his strict view of the matter and no amount of words would sway him. This was a quality of Lee from his youth. It was said of him as a young student that his specialty was finishing up. He completed what he began and fulfilled his responsibilities to the full. It later became a maxim with him. You cannot be a true man until you learn to obey. Uh, the greatest challenge in Lee's life came later. When in 1861, while serving in the U.S. Army in Texas at that time, Texas seceded from the Union. Those Texans. Uh, Lee was immediately summoned to Washington, D.C., and in April of 1861, President Lincoln sent Francis Preston Blair personally to offer Robert E. Lee the command of the Union Army. Now, Lee opposed both secession from the Union and slavery. So it was logical for him to say, yes, this would be an opportunity of a lifetime. He would have the command of 100,000 troops with the full support of the government and the ablest military men in the country, plus the rank of major general. And if he answered no, many would outrank him in the Confederate Army. He knew better than most that the odds were against the South. His estate was right next to Washington, D.C. in Virginia, so he knew his home would likely be confiscated by the Union Army. If he said yes, he could retain all and have rank, glory, and wealth besides. But more deeply in him was loyalty to his homeland. He said this to Mr. Blair, I look, I look upon secession as anarchy. If I owned the four million slaves in the South, I would give them all back to the Union. 
But how can I draw my sword upon Virginia, my native state? And later he wrote to his sister, With all my devotion to the Union and the feeling of loyalty and duty of an American citizen, I have not been able to make up my mind to raise my hand against my relatives, my children, and my home. It was this sense of duty that caused Lee to to make the choice that he did. Lee saw defeat not as a personal failure to eat him up for the rest of his life, but as God's will. When a pastor lamented the loss of the Civil War, Lee responded, yes, all that is very sad and might be a cause of self-reproach, except that we are conscious that we have humbly tried to do our duty. We may, therefore, with calm satisfaction, trust in God and leave the results to Him. When it comes to our goal, not only with our children, but with ourselves, the important question is not where do you or I, but where does God set the bar on duty? The primary passage for today, or just the, the, the verse, is Matthew 5.41. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him two. Now first, we should notice that the first mile is not a request. It's a requirement. And even in some cases, it's by compulsion. You know, it's pretty easy to do what somebody tells you to do when they're nice to us, uh, especially if that person is pleasant or attractive. But when that person has authority over us and uses that authority to compel obedience, it's sometimes difficult even to do that basic task. Jesus said not only to obey, even under compulsion, but then to continue beyond what was required and go the second mile. Now, this short verse comes out of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, refers to the practice of Roman soldiers who, by law, could compel any subject to carry their pack for one mile. Now, much has been written about the meaning of this verse and much more about the, the whole Sermon on the Mount Uh, as taught by Jesus to his disciples. And whatever you may think about turning the other cheek and uh, giving up your your coat to your legal adversary or loving your enemy, all concepts found in the sermon, ask yourselves a question. Is it possible, despite these difficult questions, that these admonitions could have some meaning to us, some application to us? Why did Jesus say this? Now think about it. Pretend that you're a Roman soldier and you command a 13-year-old boy to carry your pack for a mile. Now I suspect that today the teen would be looking diligently for the one-mile marker. If not, using a cell to call his attorney to see if there's some technical exemption to the requirement. 
But suppose this boy carries the pack for a mile, and you say, okay, you can put it down and go home. But the boy says, no, I'll go another mile. And perhaps you say, but you don't have to. And then the boy responds, my master told me I should, and I desire to please my master. Might you be tempted to ask, boy, who is your master? I want to meet him. You see, if we start to think as Jesus thinks, uh, to look at difficult circumstances from his perspective, maybe even gross unfairness as opportunities to use for God's glory rather than to escape at all costs, it might be possible to make sense of some of these difficult passages because Jesus doesn't think like we think. Matthew Henry says this about this, this, uh, this verse. The going of a mile, going a mile by constraint, which is wrong to me by, in my liberty, whosoever shall compel you to go a mile, to run an errand for him or to wait upon him, Grudge it not at all, but go with him two miles rather than fall out with him. Do not say, I would do it if I were not compelled to do, to do it, but I hate to be forced. Rather say, therefore I will do it, or otherwise there will be a quarrel. It is better to serve him than to serve my own lusts of pride and revenge. Some give this sense to it. The Jews taught that the disciples of the wise and the students of the law were not to be pressed as others might. Uh, by the king's officers to travel upon the public service. But Christ will, have, will not have his disciples to insist upon this privilege, but rather to comply than offend the authority. We might get a better idea of how far we should go from a question Jesus asked rhetorically in response to a request from his disciples. In Luke 17... Starting at verse 5, the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat, servant. But... Will he not say to him, You, servant, prepare for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, We are unworthy slaves. King James uses the word unprofitable servants, because we have done only that which we ought to have done. So, we do our duty, and we are to call ourselves unprofitable servants. Doesn't make sense, does it? What does this word unworthy mean? Strong's uses unmeritorious, unremarkable, or even unprofitable. When I was in the Marine Corps, 
I had the privilege to serve the duty of officer of the day. And this was, uh, this is basically just something you had to take your turn doing. And uh, it was uh, uh, an oxymoron, kind of like military intelligence or honest lawyer, you know, because the officer of the day was the guy who got to stay up all night, you know, after everybody left. It really should have been called officer of the night, uh, because uh, what you would do is when everybody else went home from their offices and that sort of thing, and, and supposedly all the troops were in bed, is you would be responsible to make rounds uh, at odd hours and make sure that the wheels weren't falling off. Make sure that, you know, the, the guards were at their posts and awake uh, at, the, at the armory and at the comm shack and at the motor pool and other places. And, and uh, uh, so this particular time, I was the officer of the day for the whole regiment, which includes, you know, about... Uh, uh, about uh, 2,000 people, 2,000 troops. And uh, as that position allows, I had the services of a, uh, a Jeep and a driver. And so, um, this particular time, um, I was assigned uh, Lance Corporal Petrak, who happened to be the colonel's driver in my battalion. And so, Lance Corporal Petrak was a fairly unremarkable Marine. He was a nice guy. Uh, he was dependable, you know, kind of smallish in stature, uh, and uh, and we knew each other. And so it was it was uh, uh, you know we, at some point in the evening, I said, Petrak, uh, let's go make a round. And so we got in the jeep and we started to drive around the regimental area. Uh, you know, pretty unremarkable evening. It's about uh, I think uh, 1:30 in the morning. Uh, not too much going on until we get to this one barracks and we kind of notice this commotion and somebody yelling. And so I said, stop the Jeep. And I get out and I start to approach. And I see a couple of guys crouch down toward each other, kind of looking like they're about to have a wrestling match. And as I get closer, I notice that one of them has a knife in his hand. And I try to make suggestions that he put it down. And you know, uh, if an officer tells you to do something and you don't do it, that's disobedience of, an, of a lawful order, and you can be court-martialed for that. So I figured, hey, they're going to do it. Well, it soon has become obvious something is impeding him from doing that. I figured somebody must have challenged somebody's masculinity or something because uh, he's, not, he's not buying it. Both of them, in fact, are not paying any attention to me, and when I get close enough, I can kind of see by their appearance and everything else, they're snockered. I mean, they're heavily under the influence. And they continue to circle round and round as if they are going to go at it. And I'm thinking, what do I do? You know? And so as I am trying to mediate between these inhibited individuals and wondering what's going to happen next, because they're extremely angry at one another. Off in my periphery, I see this flash of a figure. And Lance Corporal Petrek has jumped on the back of the guy with the knife, got him by the arms, and wrestled him down so that we can de then disarm him of his weapon. Now, 
What was Petrek's duty? Drive the Jeep. Drive the lieutenant around. That's it. That's all he had to do. But because he went beyond his duty, he saved perhaps the life of an individual, perhaps even mine. Another example out of Scripture is a parable in Matthew 25. Starting in verse 14. For it is just like a man, kingdom of God, about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two talents, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And then he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and, gave, and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And also the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted me with two. See, I have gained two more. His master said, Likewise, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you do not scatter seed. And I was afraid, and I went away, and I hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back at least with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance." But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Listen to this. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, what made the third servant unprofitable? He didn't lose the talent entrusted to him. You could say even that he preserved and protected it. Now, in my mind, clearly these talents are meant to represent gifts, abilities, if you will, even talents that God gives to each one of us. The point is, if we just hang on 
to our abilities or our giftings and do nothing with them to serve within and without the body of Christ, come our judgment day, all we'll be able to say is, you know, I still have the gift of serving or prophecy or ruling or teaching or exhortation. I didn't lose it honest. Can you imagine looking into the face of the creator of the universe who set each one of us on this planet for a general purpose to glorify him, but also a specific purpose in each of our cases? And that's all there is to say? I suspect that I will want to give a better accounting than that. Now, how about you? We spent the month of September talking about finding your niche in the body of Christ. You know, where we can serve and how we can use our gifts, each and every one of us. Uh, we don't have a, a high view of the, uh, the priest-laity distinction here at Lion of the Lamb. We want everybody involved, everybody serving. Uh, and as more and more of us take on that mantle of servant, our body becomes stronger and stronger. Now, some may say, well, I'm just not very gifted. I may not do a very good job. and In fact, I might fail. Well, as you might suspect, that at the men's advance the last couple of days, we actually did a little more than just talk about sports. And the, the challenge was to all of us is that is anything going to come as a result of what we talked about? Now, Mike, in, in, in talking to us about leadership, challenged each one of us with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt, which I'll read now. It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs and comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error or shortcoming. But who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself for a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least he fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who knew neither victory nor defeat. The, the question is, for each one of us, am I here to serve or to be served. Certainly some people are in a position where they need to be served. We've all been in that position before. And I don't think it's impossible to be in both positions. Thankfully, there are many, many within this fellowship who go beyond the minimum to the extra mile. 
just to name a few. You know, we couldn't do what we do without Eric Anderson. And all the technical stuff that he provides for us. You know, Bill and Dan and Sean and Joe and Steve and many others who minister through music are a tremendous blessing. I happen to know that Dana Singleton, as a single mom, serves in countless ways that nobody ever sees. The Hunts have lovingly sought a second family to raise, but in so many other ways, they go the second mile. You know, Jamie Rundin tirelessly works on the, on the Sunday school to keep that running. The, the Billens and the, and the McElroys open their homes for hospitality. You know, I'm amazed that Kathy Halpin is still bringing the coffee every week. <laughs> and even if I do say myself, uh, my wife, in addition to raising and, and teaching a large uh, family and dealing with a wild and crazy spouse, uh, serves in many, many ways uh, within the Christian community and among uh, the younger women. These folks and many, many others within this fellowship serve selflessly without any fanfare. Uh, but this brings up a caution in this matter. Why should we go the second mile? Is it for extra credit? I think Peter said it best in 1 Peter, uh, verse 13. He said, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold or silver, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass the grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. 
In other words, love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the proper motivation to go the second mile. Lord God, we give our praises and our honor to you. And Lord, we are still learning. We still stumble. Yes, Lord, we, we suffer from pride and negligence. Uh, sometimes we're insensitive. Sometimes we just refuse to see the needs that are around us. But Lord, I pray that you would instill in each one of us here today a renewed desire to serve you by serving those around us within this body, within the larger body of Christ, and Lord, to those outside who are lost and desperately looking for an answer. Father, thank you for the saints who are serving you selflessly right now and who are going the extra mile. Lord, give us all that same vision and continue to work in and through us as your tools for your work. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.